You are listening to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. I am Asa. And I'm Allison. And on today's podcast, we're going to talk about Don Juan, written by the singular Richard Strauss. So this Richard Strauss, though he has the same last name, is of no relation to the Viennese waltz kings that we have talked about before. So Richard, on the contrary, was born in Germany in 1864, and though he was proficient at the waltz form, he actually wrote more substantial works than just these merry dances. Not to dig on waltzes, though, just making that clear. <laughs> uh, Strauss's own father was a musical professor and musicer to the Bavarian court. However, young Richard seems to not really have taken lessons from his father. Rather, he learned piano with Auguste Tombo, violin with Benno Walter, and began studying composition with Friedrich Wilhelm Meyer. His earliest compositions originated when he was six, but that was before his formal composition lessons actually began when he was 11. And despite not having formal lessons with his father, Strauss was actually heavily influenced by his father. So the elder Strauss loved the classical and early romantic composers such as Haydn, Beethoven, and Schubert, and as a result, much of young Strauss's early output is quite grounded and formulaic as compared to the more contemporary styles of the time that were being put out by composers such as Wagner. When he was 18, Strauss joined a community orchestra that was conducted by his father. And it was this experience that really got him into composing for the orchestra, as he wrote several symphonies and concertos specially for this group. Now, unlike many other composers of this time who gained fame after graduating from a large university program, Strauss spent only a winter at the University of Munich before leaving and promptly gaining fame outside of Germany with a violin concerto. And he then moved to Berlin to create his successful career, and then, like many of his contemporaries, he also began a career as a conductor. By 20 years old, without a college degree, Strauss became an international artist when his second symphony was premiered in the United States and his fame was further spreading through Europe. All during this time, Strauss had had to keep a dark secret. Oh. He loved the music of Wagner. And this was a secret, mainly just from his father, who hated Wagner and encouraged young Strauss to do the same. However, after attending performances of many Wagner works, Strauss's eyes were open to the truth that Wagner's music was actually pretty good. <laughs> and because of this, many people tried to push Strauss into the role of Wagner's successor. However, it's a little more complicated than that, because basically Wagner was a little crazy with his ideas and storylines for his works, while Strauss, on the other hand, took a more pragmatic approach trying to make his works accessible to the modern era. Now, Strauss did eventually coin his post-Wagnerian musical style, mostly though in the form of tone poems. These are works that are mostly programmatic, with themes to represent things, though not on the scale of Wagner, sort of miniature leitmotifs. Sometimes they're called symphonic poems as well, as if to show they have the depth of a symphony, but not the form. And in 1889, he conducted the premiere performance of the tone poem Don Juan, who we're going to delve into a little bit later, and this piece really established him as the foremost composer of his time. 
And also unlike Wagner, and most late Romantic composers for that matter, Strauss was actually happily married. He was married to his wife, Pauline d'Anna, for 55 years. So possibly the only romantic among them. Aww. <laughs> Strauss wrote many more lovable tone poems, including Don Quixote and A Hero's Life. And these symphonic stories gave him a great springboard to jump into the world of opera. His first opera, Salome, was based on a play by Oscar Wilde. This work was less successful only because many companies would not perform it due to its racy nature. One of Strauss's most successful operas, however, was Der Rosenkavalier. This work was the second of many collaborations between Strauss and his librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Strauss lived during a very interesting time in history. He was born in the mid-1800s, but he lived through both world wars. This meant that often his art was at odds with the politics, but he really didn't care for the political side of things. He just wanted to compose. And as stated by Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, Though he was able to manipulate the grand dukes and kaisers, he proved to be no match for the ruthless totalitarianism of the Third Reich, and unwittingly allowed himself to be used by them for a time. So he held the post of president within the Chamber of State Music, However, he lost favor with the Nazis after releasing a comic opera, The Silent Woman, that was not to their taste. <laughs> he lived out the rest of World War II in Vienna and Switzerland, and after the war, the denazification process cleared his name. Sadly, he died just a few months later from kidney failure at the age of 85. So the tone poem that we're talking about today, Don Juan, was composed in 1888 and was the first tone poem style piece that Strauss premiered, although it was actually the second one he composed. He tried his hand first at making a musical Macbeth, but the world first experienced Don Juan. And it might have been good that he chose this timeline for his works, because with Macbeth, Strauss was a little safer with the composition, trying to stick more to a musical form. Well, with Don Juan, he gets to be a little more free and just have a loose rondo form kind of thrown in. So it's overall more fun. So you'll remember back from episode 40 about Johann Hummel, where rondo form is when a single theme comes back again and again with new material interspersed between repetitions. And this works well for a tone poem that is telling a story focused on a hero. Don Juan has a hero theme that comes back after each of his little adventures in the plot. For example, here in the middle... But we also heard it straight off at the beginning of the piece. And this beginning theme is quite fun because it starts out the whole piece without any build-up whatsoever, and it's just this loud, brassy, brash thing that kind of catches the unsuspecting listener off guard. And in my mind, I kind of like to imagine this theme as the actor who's playing Don Juan in this musical play, and he's just missed his cue to walk out gallantly onto the stage and instead has to show up in a rush of comical flurry. But this piece is by no means all fun and games. 
Strauss based his story for Don Juan on a poem by Nicholas Lenau, and the Don Juan character is much like the Faustian characters we've talked about before. He is a basic idea, but all of the authors put their own spin on how the story actually plays out. This version of the story features not a rascal, but a philosophic adventurer. This Don Juan doesn't want just any woman. He wants <laughs> the perfect woman. Now, in addition to our questing hero, we do meet some other characters in Strauss's tone poem story, and they are the women that Don Juan meets along the way. They can be sweet and sociable. Or seductive and elusive. They can be beautiful and captivating. Or disdainful and independent. And as the story comes to the end, we meet a final character, the Commentadore. Who is the father of one of the above-mentioned women. Obviously angry at Don Juan. For some reason. <laughs> the two duel, and Don Juan is defeated, and his spirit fades away to the end of the piece. So Strauss, as a modern composer during his time, really wanted to push the limits of composition. As this is an earlier work from his output, he has already kind of pushed the limits by creating a whole new genre, the tone poem, but the idea behind it wasn't entirely new. The Romantic era had been in full swing for quite some time now, and one of the earliest programmatic works, Symphonie Fantastique by Hector Berlioz, had already been written almost 40 years earlier. So, like Berlioz, Strauss helped make his music stand out by writing ever more challenging orchestration. Many parts are notoriously used in professional auditions due to their extreme difficulty to this day. Consider, for example, the horn section that has a particularly hard job in this piece. They have to reach incredible ranges in incredibly exposed parts throughout the entire work. For example, in this section, where just four horns play counter-melody to the entire string section. That's what you'd call a real chop-buster. <laughs> 
And another workhorse of this music is the oboe and English horn section. They play a major solo role compared to the other woodwinds in basically every character's development. And there's one final modern innovation that we've kind of already mentioned, and that's how Strauss begins and ends this piece. So it starts out with the grand heroic gesture, but it ends quiet and kind of dying away. Now obviously this falls into how the story goes and the hero dies at the end, but I think it's also written this way somewhat to jar the audience. So remember, the beginning seems to catch us off guard. And then the pacing and orchestration at the end also kind of catches us off guard, because the strings cut out on an unresolved harmony, leaving only the timpani and pizzicato strings to actually resolve to tonic. So if you don't listen closely, you might just miss it and be waiting. Forever. Overall, the form of this piece is is fairly cheeky. <laughs> we mentioned earlier how the tone poem was very much like a, a Wagnerian symphony in that it had all of these recurring themes, but it's so much shorter. All of this material, all of this storytelling is condensed into about an 18-minute piece as opposed to an 18-hour piece, <laughs> Wagner. As Wagner had been so successful during his musical reign, as it were, with his programmatic music, I think a lot of the composers to come after him really did kind of want to use a programmatic style with themes. It would kind of make their music rise to his level almost, as we saw last week with Mahler using his hero themes and now with Strauss using his hero themes. They're both contemporaries in the post-Wagnerian era, and their music is famous for being programmatic, but in such a way that the audience can interpret the story however they choose to. And that's kind of a modern take on Wagner's idea of using motifs to tell the audience how to interpret the music. And the shorter format of these pieces also, I think, are more palatable to a more modern audience, as Mm -hmm. Strauss especially started to straddle the era or the transition between late Romantic music and 20th century music. Although he did write Don Juan itself in 1888, this was not the only one of these pieces that he created. And it started to bridge that gap into shorter, more evocative modern pieces. And I think we can see that today in the modern pieces that are written, that there's a lot of them that do have a theme that they want you to kind of contemplate as they are played and they want you to feel certain things using the themes but not necessarily lay it all out right for you exactly 
So we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. If you did, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or Google Play and telling your friends about the hot musical brews that we serve up here on this podcast. <laughs> For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, my name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Strauss's Don Juan was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique Movement 5 was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play. Like us on Facebook for shareable episode updates. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs>